Hey everyone, your host, Angelique Carson here. Since we last spoke a couple weeks ago, things have, um, you know, they've not been great. We'll talk about that in a minute. On a personal note, I hadn't purposely timed it this way, but I did just spend two days this very week climbing some steep, dirty hills in New Hampshire's White Mountains along the Appalachian Trail. I can't tell you how necessary it apparently was to spend 48 hours in a row with my bestie and without Slack, Twitter, or email hovering above my head and heart. Uh, So I hope y'all are taking care of yourselves too. It can be so hard to shut the laptop, especially now when quick action feels even more essential than ever, but it helped me feel like a person again, so I highly recommend. Before we deep dive on today's topic, a quick rundown, as I always promise with each episode, of the most recent and relevant privacy news. I'm tasking myself with doing this, mm, I think I can do it in under four minutes, and I'm going to ask my amazing sound engineer, Chris Burns, out of the beautiful state of Maine, to start the clock for me now. Okay, TechCrunch reports this week that FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr wrote to Apple and Google on Tuesday requesting the companies remove TikTok from their app stores for its, quote, pattern of surreptitious data practices. You may have seen the BuzzFeed News report last week that TikTok staff in China had access to U.S.-based users' data up until January, apparently. So FCC Commissioner Carr wrote to Apple and Google CEOs directly and said, quote, as you know, TikTok is an app that is available to millions of Americans through your app stores, and it collects vast troves of sensitive data about those U.S. users. TikTok is owned by Beijing-based ByteDance, an organization that is beholden to the Communist Party of China and required by the Chinese law to comply with the government surveillance demands. It is clear that TikTok poses an unacceptable national security risk due to its extensive data harvesting being combined with Beijing's apparently unchecked access to that sensitive data. More on that as it develops. Zach Whitaker, a reporter for TechCrunch, who does a great job on some of this privacy stuff, reported this week that period tracker Stardust, which apparently rocketed, Zach's words, not mine, to the top of Apple's App Store over the weekend after the Roe v. Wade uh, decision. Apparently, the app shares the phone number of users who have to give it to the app when they sign up to a third-party analytics firm called Mixpanel. Check out that story at TechCrunch uh, uh, if you're interested. As The Verge reports... Joe Biden made some news on privacy. As early as this very week, President Joe Biden plans to ask the Federal Trade Commission to protect consumer data privacy following the Roe v. Wade decision. Biden's request is expected to come by way of a letter to the FTC, The Verge reports, asking the agency to protect the privacy of women and birthing parents online. Specifically, Biden will say that the FTC should not tolerate unfair or deceptive practices related to, quote, reporting, surveillance, sharing, or sale of personal information, including sensitive health-related information in any state. Uh Also, Biden did a press conference yesterday, which you may have seen. There's been some kind of cool audio clips of it where he said, we have to change that decision by codifying Roe v. Wade, obviously speaking of the Dobbs decision of Friday of last week. Um, He says that that decision is essentially a challenge to the very right to privacy, which brings me to today's episode. Friday, June 24th, we woke up to devastating news. There's a dog barking in the background. Sorry, I'm recording from home. I've tried this four times. It's going to just remain. I apologize. I say we when I say we woke up to devastating news because I hope that those who didn't lose their own rights woke up to the decision feeling outraged as well. In the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court said women don't have the right to have an abortion. I hope you can understand the fear and panic that it 
that that incites in us as women. We grew up with teachers and mentors and coaches telling us that despite what history indicates, we're as human as men. We're not inferior on a cellular level, on an intellectual level, on a physical level. But what the court told us is that the government, largely run by white men, now has the right to override our decisions on what's best for us and our bodies. As women, we make decisions every single day based on what's best for those around us and those we care about. That's just a fact. We've always been the caretakers of our societies. And this decision says, thank you for your service, but we deem you intellectually and physically inferior, and we know what's best for you. Trust us. As such, we're going to strip you of the right to make decisions about the organs inside your actual body. If you don't have uh, a uterus and you don't understand why this would be so earth-shatteringly offensive and dangerous, imagine if the roles were reversed. It's not a perfect comparison, but I think the most visceral one that I see people making is if the Supreme Court were to say, hey guys, hey men, we don't think you're smart enough or worthy enough. That is, we don't count you as equals to women. So we're going to mandate that you all get vasectomies. That way, we curb a lot of the problem we're having with the overpopulation or with orphans or fatherless children. So we're going to reach right inside your actual body. I have to wonder, would that be okay with you? As women, we feel humiliated, abandoned, and shocked that we, in what's supposedly the greatest country on earth, although, I mean, how many times does, how many times do people tout that and how many times do we think, are we though? But anyway, we feel humiliated and abandoned and shocked that we've been relegated to such a status. I truly never thought that this, that this would actually go down. The only thing I could think to do when I got the news on Friday was to rally three of the smartest, most badass people I know to talk through what we're feeling and where to go next. Heather Poteet is Senior Manager and Lead Counsel for Privacy Risk at Twilio. Lena Gamrawi is Privacy Counsel and DPO at Quora. And Whitney Merrill is Data Protection Officer and Lead Privacy Counsel at Asana. And I want to say here now that I have so much respect for these three. They've chosen to shout loud and clear that this is wrong and that they won't stand by quietly and watch it go down. That can be dangerous. Luckily, like I do, these three work for companies who decidedly won't penalize them for shouting from the rooftops that what's happening is criminal. But it's still a risk. We're living our lives online. A lot of us work at companies where we're trying to sell products, we're conscious that tweets don't die, and there can be future repercussions that we can't even see yet for such bravery. But some things are bigger than business. I hope you take something out of this painful but necessary chat. Love you. Stay strong. Talk soon. What was that day like for you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I have been, of course, watching um, and waiting for for that decision to come down ever since May when the draft was leaked. Um, and I'll sort of rewind a little bit that when the draft was leaked, uh, Lena and a couple of other people um, immediately started, started gathering the troops, um, which was amazing um, and kind of... Uh, help to put a dent in that feeling of hopelessness. Um, and so um, when the decision came down, it was, it was on Friday. Um, and Fridays, I work out with, my, with a personal trainer. And so the first thing 
was I saw that came down and I saw Thomas's concurrence that, you know, not only are we doing this horrible thing to women and to privacy, but we're coming after contraception and we're coming after gay rights and screw you. Um, and I was just ready to burn the world down. And so I got to go immediately work out and, you know, throw some weights around and smash a ball against a wall and get a whole lot of aggression out. And that felt a lot better. Um, but I still spent the whole, the whole day, the whole weekend ready to burn shit down. Um, and then the first thing that I did when I got to work was I gave my team the day off was because I knew that if they were anything like me, they were going to be doom scrolling the whole day and nobody was going to get anything done. So I was just like, go do what you need to take care of your mental health. And And I'm sure you super appreciated that. As I mentioned on Twitter, my leadership team sort of did the same thing and came back with like, here's what we're going to do at our company. And that felt really good. Lena, Hannah mentioned that you started gathering the troops. Can you tell us a little bit about what your reaction was? What, what troops were you gathering? Yeah, so when the draft was leaked in May, um, Caitlin Ringrose, Anisha Reddy, and I got together and we just decided to put out a statement. But as we started drafting a statement as women and others in the privacy field, we realized we'd rather have a big umbrella or a big tent. And we gathered about 30 folks in field. Um, Angelique, you were also involved. And we basically put out a statement saying that as privacy professionals, um, this draft decision goes against everything that we stand for. Um, we understand the privacy implications, which we can get into later in this discussion. And, um, even though we had done all of that and we kind of, that was a good way for us to get our frustrations out on paper. When the actual decision was released on Friday, um, it was still awful. It was horrible. I don't think any of us grew up in the era before Roe. And so I think it was the first time going on Twitter and seeing all these older women and other individuals speak out about their experiences and seeing their moms, their sisters, their friends die trying to give themselves abortions. And I think just reading all those stories made it just so much more real. Whitney, tell us about that day for you when you, uh, when you read what went down. So yes, we were expecting this. I will say, I think I am a hopeful and sometimes naive individual in that, like, part of me was like, maybe it won't. Maybe the leak changed the universe. And I know there are going to be people listening going, she's stupid. And I think that's fair. But I also was like, I don't know. I, I had like a little piece of hope. Maybe that was my coping mechanism that maybe it won't happen and maybe it won't be as bad as what was leaked. Um, it being worse, I saw it and I was like, of course, like that happened. Um, I am, you know, I do did, I did believe in the legal institution. And as a lawyer who spent, who spent a lot of my life, you know, and went into law school to do civil liberties and privacy This one just feels like a gut punch to everything I believe in, not just like as a privacy individual, um, not just to women's rights, not just to like rights of individuals with uteruses. It's um, it just feels like what's the point? (laughs) That's that's where I'm kind of at on it. And I know that like it's very I guess it's kind of selfish on my end, but it's like 
I had a little bit of hope that it wouldn't be this bad. And we saw this slow train wreck happening for years. And it just feels like everyone was like, no, no, it'll be fine. And we're like, no, this train wreck is going to happen. It's going to happen. Like someone stop it. And now the crash has happened. And you're like, yeah, we kind of all saw this was happening. And maybe that's why I had hope is that like nobody seemed to be doing anything that I thought maybe I'm overreacting and gaslighting myself into thinking like this isn't a thing. So that's kind of where I don't even have fully formed feelings about it yet. I'm still processing. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm pretty pissed. I think it feels really shitty to be in a world where the rights are being taken away after just so recently given. Um, I thought we were past that, but apparently not. I agree. I think I was in the same place where I was really naive. I always just thought when I learned about like Roe v. Wade in school, it was kind of like when I learned about the Holocaust, to be honest with you, it was like there was a thing that happened and there was a time before where things were really, really bad. But then we fixed it and we were like, oh, that terribleness can never happen again. And like learning about it was like learning about something, you know, like these other, you know, like I said, like, like these historical events where you're like, thank God that was before, you know, we got smart about how to prevent people from, you know, not having human rights to use a double negative. Like, and I think that that's why it shocked me too, that I, I was naive too, and just thought there's no way that that we're going to live in a world where the courts would say to women, like, you aren't a full person. Um, and I think a lot of my colleagues too, we got on like a little Google hangout after they ended our staff meeting early so we could all grieve. And there were so many tears. I mean, people that are really strong women that like, I'm personally scared of, like, if I don't meet a deadline for this woman, like, I'm like, oh my God. And she was just, I mean, she felt so betrayed and so scared and so like shocked. And I thought, wow, this is really a turning point in all of our lives, you know? Um, I want to start uh, talking a little bit about the issues. And one thing that I thought was interesting was that there seemed like to be a little bit of pushback in some corners of the internet about whether this was even a privacy issue. Hannah, your thoughts on, is this a privacy issue at all? Yeah, it's absolutely a privacy issue. Um, it, uh, But so many of the substantive, substantive due process um, cases have all been privacy. They've all been, um, they've all come down to the right to make decisions um, within the confines of the home or within the confines of the family. Um, and so we talk about, Lena just talked about um, the sort of dichotomy between decisional privacy and informational privacy. Um, and that's something that sort of Daniel Solov has um, has talked about in depth. Um, and we, as privacy professionals, tend to dwell on informational privacy and the privacy of data and how data moves. But the ability to make decisions about data um, is where that all stems. And the ability to choose... Um, uh, Germany has a concept about informational self-control, which I've always thought was a beautiful way of phrasing it. Um, you can't have self-control about information unless you have self-control. 
unless you have autonomy, unless you have the ability to make decisions about yourself, about your body, about your your family, um, about who who you choose to have sex with. Um, these are um, these are ultimately rooted in decisions and autonomy. Um, and you can't get to that data until you get to autonomy. Well said. I love that. What do we fear, Hannah? What do you personally fear this leads to? I know I've seen some articles, you know, or some tweets of people saying this isn't, you know, where it stops. We mentioned earlier, you know, contraception could be next. And then we've talked about how does this like flow downstream and is it going to, or is that an overreaction? Well, um, no, that's not an overreaction at all. Um, Justice Thomas has been very explicit, is something that we talked about when I was in law school, talking about Thomas really wanting to go after substantive due due process and talking about the the privileges and immunities um, clause and saying that this this was something that he found personally offensive. So this is something that's been in his crosshairs <clears throat> forever. And he's finally gotten enough friends to go after them. So um, this is not new. Uh, as Whitney said, this is, this is something that <clears throat> a, lot of, um, a lot of members of a certain fringe group have, um, have really wanted to strike down. But it isn't just abortion. It is um, this idea that all of our rights should be enumerated rights and there should be no penumbra. Um, And that is frightening because so much of what we believe, what we feel um, should be right, should be protected. The right to make, for a parent to make decisions about their children. Um, you know, we can like immediately in my mind is contraception, uh, gay marriage, the right to make decisions, um, within the household about, um, you know, who you have sex with, how you have, how you have create your, your, um, relationships. Um, but it goes on from there. It is all of our, um, penumbra rights are, um, are in the crosshairs. They're going to start with contraception. They're going to start with gay marriage. They're going to start with, um, with relationships outside of marriage. But they're going to go with everything else because the idea is to strike down substantive due process as being something that is extra constitutional. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this who know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and but a lot that I just, have no idea. I, no, 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 no. I just want to make sure that I'm, talk to me for a minute about due process. Like, what is the relationship between uh, due process and and what we're talking about now? Yeah, yeah. Um, it is It is the idea, um, so to sort of boil it down, um, there is this idea for most of us, that um, the Constitution grants you certain explicit rights, like the right of free speech. And then there's 
a part of the Constitution that says that there are other rights that aren't specifically listed here. And you still have those rights. We just didn't bother to list them all because there's too damn many. And you can figure out what those are. Future judges, you can say what those are, or the states can say what those are, or there are other rights. They exist. And those we think of as the penumbra. The 14th Amendment um, also gives us um, the idea of substantive due process. The government can't take away your the rights that you have without due process of law. Um, and so um, when you have these, these sort of not specifically mentioned rights, these unenumerated penumbral rights, um, the government can't just take those away. Um, you have a due process right to things like privacy. I gotcha. Yep, that makes more sense to me. Okay, thank you. Thank you. What do you think we can actually do as women, as women in privacy, particularly if we're saying, okay, this is a privacy issue? Is it incumbent on us to do something? Is it necessary or not and and if so like what do we do i think a lot of us right now just feel stunned and sad and then it's like that whole you know moving through the stages of grief like what do we do to feel better and when we feel well enough to take some action lena do you have thoughts on that yeah so there's a few things we could do the first is use our platforms and our voice to speak up just like you are angelique by hosting this podcast so A lot of us also have positions of influence or some kind of power in our own companies that we work for. So leveraging that and speaking out on behalf of other employees, both to ensure that the organizations we work for have protections for people that are seeking abortions. And if you work for a tech company, um, there's actually a few things you could do. But one of them is talk to your legal team if you're not part of the legal team and make sure that you have policies around what to do in the event of a law enforcement access request. Um, that's one. I saw something on Twitter that was a good idea as well. It's like, think about maybe um, issuing transparency reports that talk about what kind of requests your company is receiving, how many, from what agencies. Um, a lot of this too, obviously, has to be run through legal. But I do think that there's things that we as privacy professionals can do. And I also think that the men in our field need to step up. I know a few have been vocal and really supportive, but I I don't see enough in my circles uh, doing more. Hannah, quick, uh, before we lose you, can you follow up to that? Should we take action? If so, what do we do? Yeah, I I agree. Um, Taking taking action um, in terms of advocacy, reach out. um, If you are, you know, those of you who are listening who are lawyers, reach out to your advocate um, organizations and see if you can help draft amicus briefs. Um, I mean, it's a little too late on the Supreme Court front, but there's there's going to be challenges right and left at the, at, at the state levels. Um, they're going to be looking for help. Um, help draft amicus briefs. 
Um, I mean, obviously donate. Um, everybody needs it now. But um, for those who are looking for something to do, if you're at a company, um, get your company on board for Amicus Brief Drafting. This is this is where voices can can help. Whitney, curious to hear your thoughts. Do you feel like we're heading in the right direction in terms of strategies and what we should uh, should be doing? Do you have other thoughts? What are your um, What do we do? I will tell you. I really don't know. I agree with everything that um, the other two folks have said. But I think there also needs to be more. Um, I think we've been doing some of that already. Um, I, you know, I'm torn. I, I tweeted a couple days ago, you know, don't travel to the states that are treating people like this. I, for one, would not feel safe traveling um, to a place where if I did have an atopic pregnancy, I could not get health care. Um, that really scares me, um, like for my own personal safety. And so, um, you know, someone replied back to me and said, well, you know, that harms the economic communities of those states. And, and I agree with that statement too, but I also don't know what to do because, you know, if we've not learned anything until like the economic, until there's like an economic or financial consequence, a lot of people don't want to act. And, you know, the there are people smarter than I as to why things have gone in the direction they've gone, but I think it is a pandering to a base that is very vocal and probably has funds that they want to spend on the cause. And so if they can feel the financial pain, that might be one thing. Um, I think continuing to support organizations who are already doing this work is really important. I think spinning up new stuff is not going to necessarily be super helpful. You know, look to the experts who've already been working in this area for the last. 10, 15, 20 years um, plus um, and look to them for help, you know, how you can help and give resources. Um, on a personal level, I tell people, I think you need to take care of yourself um, and make sure that you feel safe and that you have a plan. Um, and while that feels like you're not doing something, we can't all fight when it gets worse um, unless we've taken care of ourselves. And so my big thing is taking care of yourself is doing something. Um, and then you can take care, take care of others. Um, it's kind of like on an airplane when they say, you know, put your mask on first and then help the person next to you. I think we're definitely in that. Um, and so for the people who are less affected by this, men, um, <laughs> uh, men without uteruses, um, you need to help. You need to step up. You need to speak because some of us are busy taking care of ourselves and figuring out what our next steps are because we're worried about our own bodily autonomy um, or close, you know, friends, mothers, daughters, et cetera. Um, and so that's that's my recommendation. Yeah, I think that's a welcome message right now, too, because I think especially the piece that you said about taking care of yourself, because I think <clears throat> the initial reaction is like like my initial reaction was we got to talk like let's do a podcast. And I immediately went into like even though that's a very small, you know, I'm not actually helping the cause necessarily as as much as I'm saying, let's talk about it and grieve together. But I think like you feel this pressure of like, what do I do? What can I do? How do I make sure that I'm like playing the right role in this? And I'm not just passively watching like my rights pass me by, but at the same time, like you're already, I mean, we're still in 
not out of like the COVID era. Like we're all still, we're all still trying to get through a goddamn pandemic. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, like it's another blow. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're already depleted in terms of energy and mental capacity and, um, life's hard without COVID and without the Supreme Court saying you're not a real person. Um, but now, you know, so I do think, you know, finding ways to take care of yourself. Um, I like that piece. I did see a lot of people saying the day it came out immediately, uh, privacy people, cybersecurity people, tech people, uh, et cetera, you know, delete, delete any apps that have anything to do with pregnancy, fertility, your menstrual cycle, et cetera. Um, why do you think people were saying that? And is that a legitimate reaction or, or is that an overreaction? Whitney? For those who can't see my face, I'm kind of smiling. I think it's an interesting reaction. It's a right. We're all looking to do something. And I think that one feels like, oh, I can do something here. I can protect myself just a little bit more by doing this. But what what makes me feel like it's both an underreaction and an overreaction is I feel that way about data and privacy every day. Um, every day, I think people are at risk um, be, based on how apps are built to not protect data privacy. I feel about that every day. And so this one, I'm like, yeah, that's legitimate. But I feel that way about like all the apps. And I feel that way about health data generally that is not protected health information, which is the protected data under HIPAA. And even HIPAA is not good enough from a privacy perspective. And so I'm like, yeah, like, I don't trust those apps. Um, I, I actually... For the one that I personally use, I did a lot of vetting on it ahead of time. And why do things need to be sent to the cloud? And why are they using fertility information and and my health data to sell me ads? And like ending that, like, this is just a reckoning of things like that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so at the same time, I think it's both an overreaction and an underreaction. It's like, we should feel that way about every single piece of data. This is the thing about privacy that I think a lot of regulators, um, especially in the United States, get wrong. The value of a piece of information is not um, the same over time. It changes as the world changes around it. And therefore, we can't calculate value or harm to that data. And so we can say 10 years ago, you know, somebody having access to my fertility information, no big deal. Today, it's a big deal. This means if I should have control, more control over my data, where is the federal privacy law? It should preempt all of the other federal laws and the state laws. And I can go on a rant here, but this is what it's all about. Give us the basic privacy rights that affect all the apps, all of our privacy rights, and just act, move in that direction. And we're just talking about it in circles. And then they want, I saw with all like, good feeling. They want to have a health data privacy and location app bill. I forget what it's called. I get it. And all I thought is great. Another sectorial cutout of privacy rights that will fall behind all the rest, just like financial with GLBA, just like HIPAA has with PHI, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's, that's how I feel. I'm like, it's just like a signal of like, 
how bad the ecosystem is. I love how passionate and that's why one of the reasons I asked you on the show, because I watch you on Twitter and you're always very passionate and uh, you really don't mince words about this stuff. But to be clear, when you talk about um, risk to that kind of data, are you more concerned about data brokers? Are you concerned about the ad tech industry? Are you concerned about government access? Where, where is that concern for you? All of the above, because what ends up happening in the app ecosystem is once that data comes, goes out of your control, it goes, you've lost it. It could be sold, reused. They can change the privacy policy to say data that previously been sold, like we promised weren't going to be sold, is now sold. It could be collected by an ads provider who says, we promise we're not doing anything with it. But they update their policies and tell the business who they do the business. And you as the end user don't even know. And so it's like you literally lose control of that data once it ends, like leaves the ecosystem. And the more places you lose control to that data, the more abilities there are for it to be abused and accessed without authorization. And I'm saying, or even with authorization, against your knowledge or consent. And so... That's my thing is government access, right? We have problems. We go into warrant requirements, third-party doctrine, um, all sorts of stuff for, for days. But government access, right, you know, it's if we're really worried about it, then build something so it's end-to-end encrypted. Like, truly, um, why is this data being stored on a server? Why is it being accessed by ad networks? Because if they don't get it from me directly or they don't get it from the app directly, We'll go to the ad provider who they know happens to have this data too. And so it's all of the above, unfortunately. And I think the app ecosystem has been a wild west for a really long time and is moving in the right direction. I think Google and Apple, let's, let's give Apple the credit. Apple's doing the right thing and Google's following along kind of um, in a way that they don't have to. And I'm really appreciative of that. We're not all the way there and they can do a lot of things to improve, but at least it's getting a little less wild westy. A little less wild westy. We'll take it, you know, a little less wild westy. 